Well, welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast. My name is Matt. I'm the host of this podcast, and uh, this is episode 210. And uh, today's episode is going to be interesting uh, because I think it is going to be sensitive. It's going to be sensitive across the board. It has the potential to raise everybody from a one to a five star on the Thai cuisine kind of rating scale here. Uh, And I'm aware of that. I want to acknowledge right from the get-go that in dealing with the subjects such as pro-life, pro-choice, the new Texas law, that I am wading into the swamp of uh, a lot of emotions, right? Uh, On both sides. I mean, that's the interesting thing about abortion and its subject matter is that it touches everybody deeply emotionally, almost instantaneously as you begin to talk about it. And no matter where you land on that spectrum, depending on the mixed company that you're in, it fires up right here, even more than in the head. It fires up in the heart, right? Just right there in the chest, and the gut. It gets you going, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice. And so I know that in trying to do a podcast on this, it's so hard because A, it's a monologue, not a dialogue. B, because I'm kind of out there not knowing who's listening or watching. And so I'm not even able to read the body language as I'm talking. And that can be a little frustrating. So much so that I almost go like, hey, maybe I shouldn't even deal with this topic. Maybe I should skip this to something else. Just choose something about puppies and kitties and call it done, you know. But but as my ambition so often is the case, I want to take hard stuff and figure out ways to navigate it in a Jesus-like way, which when I say that, what I mean is not in a political left or political right way, not in a disbelieving way or just simply a religious way, but to do the hard kind of nuanced stuff of how does Jesus or how do I think Jesus would want me to process this problem? And what's hard about that, I realize all the time, is that that actually takes prayer, it takes wisdom, and it takes work. It's a whole lot easier to say, you know what, I studied this thing like years ago, I'm just going to clap my hands, done, I figured it out, end of story, I never have to rethink this topic. And I think that's problematic. Like, that seems to be, to me, a way of cheating something where God might want us to grow, and in the growth... um, excuse me, God might want us to have more of a nuanced approach as we move forward. And I think that's probably what this podcast is about a lot of times. It's figuring out nuances, trying to break the stereotypes, the hard left, hard right, and live in this mushy, murky middle. Because when I look at the life of Jesus, I see him as a guy that basically oftentimes was ticking off both sides of topics like that. Like, you know, he he was a guy that's like, man, my kingdom's so different that the ways the world battles, it's strange to them how then Jesus approaches stuff. And I think that's probably the thing that makes me tick a lot of times and keeps me coming back to this podcast after 210 episodes. It's like, man, we need to keep growing and sanctifying in such a way that we figure out how to deal with murky stuff with a kingdom-like mindset, with the values of the kingdom intact, which by the way, I think the values of the kingdom are different, A, than the values of the Old Testament by a long mile. That's a separate subject for a different day. But in that too, the values of the kingdom are figuring out how do I love all of the players in a in a sticky topic. So even like on this topic of abortion, It's like, how do I love the unborn? How do I love the mother? How do I love the woman that has pursued an abortion? How do I love the anti-abortion activist? How do I love the pro-abortion physician who actually uh, induces abortions and, and wants to protect abortions? 
the job of the follower of Jesus of figuring out how they get to love all of those people because that's a kingdom value, right? And so that's where all of this for me then is important, even though it is messy and crazy and complicated and everybody wants to just pick their side and fight for their side. I go, I don't think the follower of Jesus has quite that same luxury. We're supposed to be grafted into the problems and we bring a slow moving, flourishing and trans transformation by being like Jesus in those spaces, right? So that's why I want to tap tackle kind of this subject today. Now in doing that, maybe a couple of things I want to get out of the way. First, I want to say, hey, I'm not an attorney. Uh, I actually, after becoming a pastor, did start pursuing uh, law school. So I actually started into the process of getting ready for that. I was going to go to Gonzaga, and then I decided, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go ahead and stay a pastor. Uh, So I didn't go down that road, and therefore, I'm not going to try to claim like I have some great knowledge on that subject. And so because of that, I want to point you in the direction of somebody that does. And so David French, he has a website called The Dispatch. David French is pro-life and has a legal background. And he does his podcast with others of legal background on matters that relate to pro-life issues and things of that nature. Uh, And in the dispatch this last week, he had a podcast and the title of the podcast, let me find it here really quick since I have it right before my fingertips, Supreme Court's Texas abortion law decision explained. Here's why I'm pointing you in the direction of this. I'm letting him do the speaking for me on the legal side because I agree with David French that this law is problematic, which throws pro-life people off because they're like, no, anything that advances the cause is good. And it's like, well, there's the law of unintended consequences. And sometimes that law of unintended consequences, you might think one thing is good, but it leads to something that can be bad, right? Or in another way, you go, you were so blinded by wanting to get a victory, you didn't see the injustice of a concept. And this is where French does a really good job of peeling away the layers and shows that this this law may be absent of justice. This law may have been blind to its further consequences. And from that, what one person creates, another person can perfect. And here's what I mean by that. This law in Texas is very interesting in that it not only kind of finds a way to subvert constitutional protections for women when it pertains to abortion, which for anybody that says, I believe in the Constitution, that should concern you. But not only does it do that, but it does it in such a way that other states could take the framework, just change it for their political ideology and go after other groups in their states with this particular framework because it displaces this idea of who actually adjudicates the law and removes the state as being the agent that is keeping the laws and enforcing the laws and instead moves it to the populace of the state where they become the ones who are enforcing the laws and doing that in such a way that subverts the constitution. So if that concerns you at any level, then this law should concern you. I'm not a lawyer to unpack all of that, so I'll let David French do that for you. So I encourage you to go to the dispatch and listen to that. And it's coming from somebody who's in the pro-life camp. I, I say that because I know some people be like, well, sure, if this is the ACLU, then they've got an agenda. No, this is a pro-life person saying this law is not a good law 
for many reasons. One, it may not be just. Two, it circumvents the Constitution by displacing the the rule keepers as being the state and making them the population. And in that, it's deputizing the population to do things with the potential of monetary gain to themselves personally, even though the event or circumstance had no relationship to them in any personal capacity. That's the problem of this law, right? So I just want to get that out of the way to say, I'm not a lawyer. They are lawyers. They know things. There's problems with it. And then therefore you want to at least be knowledgeable about that. So there's my initial thing. The more deeply important thing to me, I think, in all of this, though I might slip back into talking about this law a little bit in some of this, but the more deeply important thing to me is how we are to maintain being Christ-like in these conversations, how we're to maintain wanting to be missionally focused as we go about these things and making sure that we are bringing these values of Jesus to bear in this environment and therefore not becoming so blinded by a political or ideological agenda on maybe the conservative right that we're cutting off our nose despite our face and we're losing our ability to be Christ in the culture because it's created a giant impediment for people seeing Christ in us as we're relating to culture. That's the deeper, more important thing to me. Now, to unpack that just a little bit, uh, I want to give maybe a brief explanation of what my version of being pro-life is all about because that's a loaded term uh, and I want to be clear about this. My version has only a smidge to do with what is oftentimes the conservative version, politically speaking, of, of being pro-life. And so um, to give the broadest overview of this, my understanding of this is pro-flourishing. So it's not just simply the inability to seek an abortion, the inability to terminate a pregnancy. That to me isn't pro-life, that's anti-abortion. Uh, my version is actually pro-flourishing. And therefore from that, I believe that we need to work extra hard to bring flourishing to all persons, to the unborn, to the mother, to the woman that sought an abortion, to the abortion doctor and provider, to uh, all the way up, maybe if we went real radical, all the way to the other end of the human spectrum, which is the types of people we look at and we go, they're the worst of the worst, they're on death row for doing terrible things, even there we need to bring flourishing, right? So the calling on my life as a Christian is to love my neighbor and love my enemy, right? That's the calling. So the Christian thing is not animosity towards certain groups and love of other groups. It's love of all groups in an indiscriminate way. That is pro-flourishing. I'm pro-flourishing. I almost want to use that term more than pro-life because it's much broader than that. What that's going to mean then, if I start at the tail end of what I just described, for the person on death row that did terrible things, I don't believe in execution. That's not pro-flourishing. I don't support execution. I know there's some people that say, Matt, have you read your Bible? God was pro-execution in the Old Testament. And I'm like, right. And if you look at all the things he executed for, we all pretty much should be on death row. So from that, I think the New Testament gives a deeper architecture in which I'm to love my enemies, even criminal ones. Therefore, those who are incarcerated or in prison, whether it be death row or just other crimes, it should not be seen as punitive or punishment. It should be seen as restorative and trying to give skills and abilities and education to bring them back into the society in such a way that they can flourish. Now, if they're too uh, mentally ill or there's too much damage that's been done or there's just too much stuff in their life to be able to release them into society, then we need to show them dignity and value, not by punishing them, by throwing away the key, but rather by saying for their good and the good of society, we keep them out of society, but not punitive 
positively. We still try to show some level of care and dignity while they're incarcerated for the rest of their life because, again, they bear the image of God. That's pro-flourishing. Now, bring it down into the level of conversation we're having about the unborn and mothers and everything else. There, I don't think we should be like, you know what? You can't have an abortion, but we're also not going to help you much, right? There needs to be this incredible focus on saying, we know that if a child is born into an environment where the mother was not permitted to have an abortion, but now she must raise the child, that there is the the high likelihood of all sorts of challenges and problems because there's going to be poverty, there's going to be potentially broken homes, there's going to be all kinds of things that can bring psychological and emotional trauma as well as physical trauma to the life of that child. Therefore, we need to minimize the potential for those stresses. We need better social programs, better welfare programs. We need Christians to say, I'm not going to just fight to keep a person from having an abortion, but I'm going to dump money and resource and energy into the 18 years after that child is born. That's pro-flourishing to me in that context. And so to just be like, hey, we got rid of laws that provide for abortion, mission accomplished. No, that's just being anti-abortion. That's not being pro-life and it's not being pro-flourishing. So we need to have a more robust vision of social care and aid to women and children if this is removed from the table. Now, let me go a step further for women who've decided to go down the path of an abortion. In that sense, you know what our job is? We get to come alongside and love them. Our job is not to shame them, to guilt them, to throw their past in their face. That's not our job. In fact, one of the most beautiful pictures I see in the Gospels is Jesus in the Gospel of John chapter 8, where these religious men have found a woman in the very act of adultery, and they have drugged this woman to Jesus with the spirit of condemnation. Now, if you just stop about and think about that little tidbit of the story for just a second, it's pretty amazing to think that they didn't bring the guy. Go figure, right? It's always the woman who's going to suffer for the problem. So they don't bring the guy that the woman is caught with in the very act, but suddenly he escapes some kind of retribution here, right? But it's the men condemning the woman for this thing. And then Jesus does an amazing thing. He stands between the men and this woman. He aligns himself with the woman and stands against the men. So in other words, the men that are there to condemn and to bring up what she's done, Jesus sets himself against and arrays himself in the support of the woman. And he is for her and he stands for her and worth her with her, even as they are standing against her. This is an amazing picture. And then from that, there's this whole little scene that goes on and Jesus writes in the dust and what that really probably represents stuff out of the minor prophets of uh, their hearts being hard and like dust. There's probably some uh, allusion to that. Also probably bringing up that everybody is inconsistent. And again, we're all worthy of some kind of condemnation. Uh, And then from that, all the guys walk away. And then Jesus looks at the woman and says, where are your accusers? And she says, they've all left. And Jesus says, right, neither do I accuse you. Neither do I condemn you. What a powerful picture. Now, I know some of my friends are quite ready to jump on the fact that, oh, but Matt, don't forget, Jesus did say, go and sin no more. Don't forget to say that to her. I'm like, right. But do you honestly think she went and never sinned again? Like Jesus knows our human condition. He knows we're going to make plenty of mistakes. It's not like when he said it, she's like, okay, I'll never sin again. And she never did. But there's more to this story to me that strikes me. Because just as much as, in fact, Jesus did say, go and sin no more. It's certainly a waypoint by which we all want to travel. Here's what didn't happen in the story. Jesus didn't turn to the woman after all the accusers left and say, so woman, 
Do you see what you did wrong and why they drug you here? Do you understand the mistakes that you've made and that you need to address those? And then she says, Jesus, you're right. I totally made a mistake. Forgive me. I'm sorry. And then from that, Jesus says, well, then I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, that doesn't happen. She doesn't say a word to Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask her a question about her past. He simply looks at her and says, I don't condemn you. I'm not even going to talk about your past right now. I'm not even bringing that up. If anything, he's launching her into a more beautiful future by just right there on the spot, not asking her to drudge up her stuff, but just by telling her, I'm not holding this against you. Find a more prosperous, more beautiful, more flourishing future. You're not defined by your past. Seek a better present and a better future going down the road. I think that story is phenomenal for that very reason. And that is about being pro-flourishing. This is why, like I said, for us as Christians, we need to lean hard into this idea that we are to love all of our neighbors, regardless of their actions, their decisions, their positions, their proclivities, whatever. Like, this is what we do. And we want to launch people from where they're at into a more uh, potential rich future by being much like Jesus was with that woman that was brought forth in condemnation that day. He releases her uncondemned, not because she recognized it, but because of his unique grace in that scenario. Now, I know right now some of you, your brains are spinning and you're like, well, how does the gospel fit in all that? It's just a beautiful story that maybe gives us some direction on how we are to navigate the things of life. So now I take that, what's Matt's position? Matt's position is pro-flourishing for all parties, for the unborn, For the mother, we need to make sure there's flourishing all the way through the development of that child until they become adults. There needs to be a a sense of desire for flourishing for those who have chosen uh, to go down the path of abortion. And in that, maybe I want to make an addendum statement, which is as we come alongside them and love and encouragement and, and wanting to befriend people in that category, what you want to remember about that is that in our country, for a very long time, this has been legally permitted, right? And and I know that makes some of us in the pro-life camp more uncomfortable because we go, well, that was an unjust law that should have never happened. And I go, but we operate in what is, not what we wish was. And what is, is that the government said, you're protected by this. This is a constitutional protection. Women have this right to privacy with their doctor. And therefore, we're allowing this to happen for this reason, right? So that was there. And so for some on this conversation, we who are on the pro-life side need to understand that there's a moral ambiguity because there is a legal protection. And therefore, just because we feel something is truly immoral does not mean a person that's done that had any sense that there was this true moral problem when it related to the topic, because they've been immersed in a climate that said, hey, this has moral ambiguity. If it wasn't morally ambiguous, we wouldn't have a law that protects it. So just operating the simple sphere where we're at, what I'm saying is not everybody sees the world as we do. And when your government also doesn't quite see the world as you do, that makes it a little bit more murky. And therefore, I think we err on the side of grace and compassion with those who have gone down that road or support that cause 
because in the end, we're a lot better coming alongside in love and befriendment and then having dialogue and discussion than we are in trying to say, I'm just going to impose my moral standard on you. And if you don't see it, I'm going to consider you to be immoral. I don't think that closes any gaps, builds any bridges and gets us further down any roads where we're able to show the love of Jesus to people. So all of that is then important to me. Now, with that, rolling it back a little bit into this Texas law and this hesitation I have as far as going, how how Christian is this kind of thing? Or even worse, if this law is seen as being uh, something that was instigated by Christianity or that this law is really just a religious law uh, that's being applied, then then how is that going to be uh, interpreted? And is that problematic for then us as people of faith who have a bigger mission than simply the mission on the pro-life cause, right? So that's maybe what I'm trying to get at a little bit with this. Now, Again, circling back around to this law and the complications of it, um, I do think that as soon as you have something where it's a law, but it's not a law that's enforced by the state, but rather it's a law that's enforced by the population and specifically written in such a way that the state cannot enforce the law. So no state official or employee can enforce this law because then suddenly what that would mean is a person could then turn and sue the state. They could say, hey, Texas state, you are infringing on my right to pursue abortion as protected by the constitution. And so I'm going to sue you for infringing on my right. What the state said was, whoa, whoa, we're not infringing on your right because we're not enforcing the law, but rather we punted the law to the members or to the population of the people of Texas. And actually what it says is the whole entire U.S. population, any citizen, can sue a person in Texas who pursued an abortion, not the woman herself, but anybody that helped her do that. Uh, they can do that, but because we're out of it as a state, you can't. there's nobody for you to countersue violating your rights. Like That's super murky and, and kind of crazy uh, in its own right there. And so from that, what it begins to look like is religion figured out a way to create a law that the state put in place, but the state doesn't enforce, but rather turns and says, everybody who's pro-life, you get to enforce this for us. We know your pro-life position is motivated by religion. Therefore, this is religion in the name of law, but it's not really a state law. It's just a social law that people get to kind of accomplish for other people. That part seems really, really problematic for me. Now, the other part of this that starts to get really problematic for me is uh, in as soon as you kind of, as I say, deputize the entire population to pursue uh, lawsuits, what this also kind of does is moves the needle from what we've been contending for to something different. So what it had been up to this point is that we believe the unborn deserved constitutional protections because they are a life and we want to protect that life and really give them all the constitutional privileges that anybody else has. But but as soon as you undermine the constitution in one person's life to try to elevate it in another person's life, that does become kind of philosophically a little crazy, right? Or at least a little problematic when you're kind of putting constitution versus constitution. But this law doesn't do that. What this law seems to do is say, we can't win this on constitutional grounds. Matter of fact, we can't even try to advocate for the idea that the child is a child because then that implies something more deeply as far as essence and personhood. So we're just going to make this basically 
a lawsuit context where if somebody does this and somebody sues them, the payment is $10,000. So now the payment of the child is a $10,000 payment. So we figured out what is the cost. It's $10,000. And then with that, the person that sues the provider or a family member or whatever, because it talks about aiding and abetting those who seek an abortion, whoever is the one suing those people, even though they may have had no relationship whatsoever, they were not harmed personally in any way whatsoever, there was no connection whatsoever, if they win, they get $10,000 because of that abortion and they get all of their legal fees covered. That seems to take the higher ethic of this discussion and reduce it down to what is it all worth? Well, it's worth in uh, legal terms, a $10,000 lawsuit payment based on damages. And, And again, not because the state concluded these things. Really, it's because a judge with private citizens suing figured these things out. What's also really weird is it's kind of lopsided. It favors the one that is bringing the lawsuit, not the one that is trying to defend themselves, right? When you look at the law and when you kind of hear it played out a little bit, it's more lopsided to the one that seeks the lawsuit than the one that has to protect themselves from the lawsuit. Here's why I think this is important. See, this very kind of thing has happened in my life. And so the church I was at previously was a part of a denomination. The church had decided it wanted to get out of the denomination, but I was the newcomer that was apparently leading the charge as the denomination interpreted it. And so from that, they uh, kind of instigated this process, part of which was a civil type of lawsuit. It's a little bit more nuanced than that, but it gets to the same idea where they're like, in the meantime, we need to try to get Matt out of the premises of the church. And so we're going to seek basically a restraining order so that he cannot set foot on the premises. And therefore we can hopefully get access again to the church leadership and turn this thing around. That was kind of the way they were looking at it. But to seek Uh, basically a restraining order, you have to bring allegations against the person that they've done something in which the order should be put in place. And so from that, they brought a number of accusations against me, all of which we all knew weren't real. Like they were just kind of fabricated things to try to get at me in some way. And so from that, I was in this position, the church was in this position that we needed to kind of defend against the accusation where this civil suit was underway. And $70,000 in legal bills later, it was shown that I didn't do that thing, right? So that was kind of the trick and all that. What I experienced in that is as soon as you're accused, you have a challenge, right? And so that's what happened with all of that and everything else. But I can't help but think about this thing in Texas where I go, if you're accused of something, you instantly have to defend yourself whether you're guilty or not guilty. So it's going to cost you money. So in this sense, you could even have some people out there that are like, I'm just going to go after everybody that's ever claimed to be pro-choice and I'm going to try to sue all of them, right? And so suddenly you have all of these people that are going to be engaged in lawsuits to defend themselves, whether they did or did not do something. Or let's complicate it a little bit more. Let's say there's a woman that is considering an abortion. She's found a pipeline to make that happen, but then she has a miscarriage, But somebody decides they're going to sue anyway. How do you prove whether it was a miscarriage or an abortion? Is it going to be that we now subpoena their their medical records? And where do HIPAA laws come into this? Or what if an entire cottage industry is created, not only in people seeking lawsuits against other people, but what if, and this one seems to have some validity in my mind, what if you have some women that are going to seek abortions, have an abortion, and then turn around and sue their provider? Because if there's a woman that's in a real dark, deep spot financially that doesn't know how to get out of it, 
One of the ways that perhaps she could get out of it is to turn around and sue her very provider or a counselor that encouraged her maybe to get the abortion. And so now you have people that are able to go and actually receive funds from the very action that they undertook. I mean, the law seems to have a lot of different moving parts in there that I'm not sure how it's going to play out. In fact, I've been reading that lawyers and judges are just trying to get their bearings right now in Texas because they're like, how does this play? How does this work? And in that, I can't help but wonder, how is there justice maybe in some of this? Is it justice or is it something worse, which is just monetary threat? to emphasize and enhance an ethical position. And moreover, an ethical position that's mostly born out of religious, religious, not necessarily medical or legal conclusions. Now, I know right now my pro-life people are probably freaking out at that last little series of things. And so let me see if I can kind of dance it back out a little bit and coax out what I'm getting at, Right. In a perfect world in the United States, you want your laws to not be based on religion or in religion, right? Because the problem there is going to be who's ever in charge religiously that day is going to call the shots. So you want laws that are protecting everybody and are not generated by a religious kind of ideology. But this one seems to be very much driven by that. So Protestants and Catholics came together and pushed for laws in the state legislature that could create this mechanism that now is, well, the trigger's pulled by people that are going to be pro-life. Pro-choice people are going to pull this trigger. Pro-life people who are generally seen as religious people are going to be pulling this trigger. And so it's going to be interpreted by pro-choice people as a religious law backed by the state and using money as the means to force an ethical way of life or an ethical conclusion, right? That to me from a missionary perspective is wrought with all sorts of challenges because if there's anything that I can see pro-choice people being frustrated by is they're like, here's where religion figured out a way to overreach into our own personal and private lives. And if we don't comply, they will monetarily punish us for our lack of compliance. If the tables were flipped, we'd be very bothered about this. In fact, there's talk of the tables being flipped a little bit with like vaccination, you know, like ID cards and things like that. And we feel like you're just going to monetarily punish us for a religious belief. And well, this is just the flip. It's a religious belief that now has the legal capacity to monetarily uh, punish others if you don't comply with our view. Like I said, that seems to be wrought with a lot of problems when it comes to not only the legal process, but more important to me, how it gets interpreted, Right. Because here's the thing, having gone through legal stuff before and having somebody coming at me with legal things where there's meant to be some kind of, again, civil challenge and therefore a civil punishment, not really like the state's doing anything. It's just like private parties suing each other. Having been on the receiving end of that, I can guarantee you this. I never felt loved by those who were against me. So as Christians, if we're called to love people, but we're loving this law that does not make people feel loved, there's going to be a breakdown in that. And that certainly does concern me. Where I think that wedge gets driven even deeper is that really, if you boil this law down, the people that are most going to have to actually implement this law are the people who most disagree with it. In other words, all the abortion providers, uh, clinicians, uh, counselors, they're the ones where women are going to come to and they're going to say, I want to end this pregnancy 
And these people who feel, A, their constitutional right is being trampled in the state of Texas because that's the way they feel, those same people are going to try to look women in the eye and against everything in their being, they have to actually uphold this law or face their own monetary threat and demise. Now, some of you may say, good, that's what they get. That's what they deserve. That's their problem, not my problem. It's just the law. I go, right, but it's a law that their own state doesn't want to have to be accountable for. And so from that, where they're really putting the accountability is really on the shoulders of the very people that most disagree with it. And if there's anything that I think can create friction, can create animosity, create anger, and create greater divide, it's doing that. It's going to the people that most disagree and saying, you must most concede to this. This isn't using compelling. This isn't using good argumentation. This isn't using a sense of, hey, let me share with you a different way. This is pure and simple. I will punish you monetarily if you don't do what I say. Again, if you flip the tables, you would be angry. If you flip the tables, you would see this as persecution. If you flip the tables, you would be resentful, not open. That's where I'm concerned as a Christian. As I said from the beginning, this doesn't change my pro-flourishing position. But I look at this and I go, I don't think this is the way. I don't think getting out of um, responsibility as a state, but then leveraging the citizens to uphold this is the way. I certainly don't think using money as the wedge and the pry bar is the way. I think that's becoming blinded by a task instead of remembering what our kingdom values are all about. And so I'm sure some of you are dramatically disagreeing with me. I get that. And I'm okay with that. Right? You may look and go, no, I think this is a great law. Here's my only challenge I want to give to you in that. However we move forward, we have to do so in such a way that the people on the other side of these things know we love them, know we care for them, know we value them, know we don't look down on them. We have to figure that out because that principle matters more. Paul's words are so good. Flesh and blood, human beings are not our enemy, Right? Pro-abortion lobbyists are not your enemy. Clinics are not your enemy, right? No, we, we need to go out of our way to send a different message. And where I'm concerned again with this law is it obscures all of that. It's like in our quest, we became just almost too zealous for one goal at the cost of thinking about the humans in the process of this. Or we go, well, I was thinking about the little baby humans. I want to think about the little baby humans too. But I'm not even sure this law really is fully doing that. It may have diminished their value to increase our position. And that seems to me to not have the end goal that we hope for. We need to operate maybe at a different level, maintaining our ideology and not trying to force people into a place against their will, but rather to help Help convince them, help um, maybe uh, give a better sense of compelling position where from that they go, wow, I see your vision. I embrace that vision too. See, that's the thing I find that's so great about Jesus. He never forced anybody to follow him, but he was so compelling that people wanted to follow him. I think that's to be our posture. And when we do that, then we're doing that stuff for Jesus and we're being everyday missionaries.